Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's the 73rd episode, and I am here ahead of the Qatar Grand Prix. F1 is returning to the LaSalle International Circuit for the second time since Lewis Hamilton took the first ever Qatar GP win in 2021. And the sport is about to go on a bit of a sprint race run here. But before we get to that, first, a quick reminder, check out the link tree in the description. It has links to the pages like all the platforms you can find this podcast, like my YouTube channel, Break Bias, Twitter, and TikTok. It has my email address if you'd like to contact me, as well as my personal Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Now, let's talk about what's to play for in Qatar. Well, it's been a while since we've had a sprint weekend in Formula One. I think the last one would have been, we haven't had one since we returned from the summer break. Yeah, the last one would have been uh, in Spa in Belgium. Um, And now we're about to get three in the next four races. The next four events we're looking at, we have, uh, of course, Qatar, we have uh, Texas, we have Mexico, and we have Brazil, Mexico is the only one that it's not a sprint. Brazil, US, Qatar are all sprint weekends. So a lot of sprints coming up in the near future. And of course, that is significant because Max Verstappen, if he, I think, gets three more points than Perez or if he just scores three points, I don't even know, one or the other. Basically, that's pretty likely to happen. I think it just all he needs is three points, to be honest. I don't think it needs to be more than Perez. So three points for Max Verstappen in the sprint, and he is a three-time champion on a Saturday. That is crazy, but usually I start off with a few other things um, news-related or just about the track uh, to lead into my preview, but I'm going to go straight into what happened in 2021, and you'll see why. So this race, of course, was a replacement for the canceled Japanese Grand Prix in 2021. It was probably... Lewis Hamilton's most dominant win of the season in terms of the result, I would say. I mean, you could argue Brazil because of what he did coming from the back. Um, but he, he finished 20, 25 seconds ahead in Qatar um, here. He, he absolutely dominated um, this race in that year. Uh, Max Verstappen obviously was phenomenal that year because he won the championship. Um, and even when he didn't win, he was so good at uh, limiting the damage and always finishing P2, even when he really couldn't compete with Lewis, which more often than not wasn't the case. Um, but in Qatar, Lewis was on pole by five to six tenths. I think that was aided a little bit by a late uh, yellow flag, but still he was purple in every sector. And then on Sunday, he controlled the race, finishing ahead of Verstappen by, yeah, like I said, 20, 25 seconds. But that's probably not what was most memorable about that weekend, at least for me. There was, um, first of all, again, I don't think this is the most memorable part either, but there was a little investigation into Mercedes's rear wing uh, that Red Bull was complaining about. Um, So that was kind of played up on Drive to Survive. But the fiasco with the punctures has to be the most significant memory from that weekend at least because or or you could say Alonso's podium um his return to formula 1 uh to the to the podium in formula 1 I guess you should you could say um because of course he retired after the 2018 season returned in 2021 did not score a podium until the Qatar Grand Prix so that was pretty memorable as well but the punctures we got we got to talk about these because who's to say it's not going to happen again right i mean Pirelli picked the three hardest tire compounds for that weekend and still 
Bontas got a puncture on his front left on lap 33. About 15 laps later, both Williams cars had punctures within a couple laps of each other, again, on the front left. Norris also had a puncture, um, but I guess it was a little bit less dramatic as the other three because he was still able to go on and finish the race. I think he was on for a much better result, like a P4, and ended up P8. Um, I bet you can guess which tire blew up on him as well, of course, the front left. So why did that happen? Well, let's understand the track a little bit first. So LaSalle has been hosting motorcycle races since 2004. That's kind of what it's known for. It hosted MotoGP's first ever night race back in 2008. Actually, the same year F1 had its ever first uh, night race in Singapore. I guess a trend that year. (laughs) Uh, So the unique track layout where Qatar has a lot of high to medium speed corners. It's a very, very flowing track. Um, It's bumpy and it has the same type of curbs all over the track. They're low and they're the same type of curbs on the final couple corners in Austria. So you can really attack them. And that's why track limits is a bit of an issue here. So Pirelli found that the problem came down to the amount of times these front left tires Um, because of the high downforce nature of the track, were run on these special type of curbs. Um, And these are regulation curbs. It's not like these are just made, you know, for for motorcycle racing, although the track was designed with motorcycles more in mind than F1 cars. Um, So Pirelli found that the amount of times on these curbs at high speed with uh, considerable, you know, lateral and vertical loads um, that are being exerted on uh, these curbs is kind of what led to this um, extra wear on the tire. They said it's a, it's a situation unique to the LaSalle circuit, especially since um, extending the corner onto the curbs was... It's very rewarding for lap time. I mean, if you think about it, if you're able to you know carry more speed because you can go out a little bit wider onto the curb, you can gain a lot of time that way. It's the same thing in Austria where you can really carry speed onto the final straight if you can you know run wide onto that last corner that's why it's so important that you know the FIA strictly enforces track limits on that final corner so this year Qatar has actually come up with a unique solution at the LaSalle circuit they are reportedly trialing small concrete blocks to discourage drivers from taking too much curb um, to not only and try uh, to try and prevent those punctures but also to avoid a replay of Austria's, you know, track limits nightmare shenanigans that that we had with the amount of what was it like 1500 track limit violations, something ridiculous like that. Like it was absurd what happened in Austria. Um, the puncture situation should be a little bit of a of a less of a worry this year, I would say, because with completely new tires from 2021, um, these cars are also generating a little bit less downforce, Pirelli, you know, learning from their mistakes. All of those factors should help these tires last a little bit longer. However, that doesn't mean that this might still not be like a two-stop race because teams are worried about the puncture. So, yeah, I, I would say another important note, considering, you know, the 2021 race was a filler and now Qatar is a fixture on the calendar. I think it's signed for 8 to 10 years or something like that. There have been considerable upgrades to the track's facilities of, as well. F1 had capacity for about 8,000 people the last time we were there in 2021. Now it can accommodate about 52,000. So that is a pretty 
massive upgrade, but still that's like nothing compared to, you know, the likes of Texas, Mexico, and some of these other races, Monza, Silverstone, they can accommodate 400,000 people like that is crazy. So anyway, enough about the Qatar track. What do I predict will happen this weekend for the Qatar Grand Prix? Um, I guess it's also worth noting before I get into that. I know I uh, just said this is also worth noting for the last little nugget that I gave you guys, but Liam Lawson is driving for Alvatari again here, but it's expected to be his final weekend. Ricardo will be back in Austin, which is great because I know that is a place that he loves to race, so it will be awesome to see him make his return this season at that venue, um, but Lawson is expected to race again here. So anyway... I think this track will reward the cars with the most outright downforce. So I expect Red Bull to dominate again here um, with McLaren probably being best of the rest again. I'm not saying this track is like Suzuka, but I feel like both of these tracks reward the same types of of cars. So I wouldn't be surprised if the pecking order kind of stays the same from what we saw Uh, just a couple weekends ago. So for qualifying, I think it's got to be Max Verstappen. Um, And then looking at the sprint, sprint shootout, I expect Max to do the same. Like we said, uh, the the complaint about the sprint shootout is it is basically a replay of what we saw in the morning, barring any, you know, um, crashes, massive mistakes. Um, You know, people can be really, if they're really close, then someone can nail the lap a little bit better or not quite get the most out of the car, like within a couple tenths. So of course things can change that way. But in terms of the general pecking order, it's not going to change much from Friday to Saturday, even with, you know, major condition changes. Qatar is not going to be raining too much. So it really just comes down to track temperature and whether there's a lot of sand on the track and stuff like that. Um, So I think for the sprint, you got to stick with Max Verstappen. I think, you know, Norris could qualify P2, though, um, and have a really good sprint race, followed by, I'll say, Perez and Russell. I think this is a track that will also, I know I've said reward a lot this this episode already, but um, having experience here, and uh, I think because of how flowing the track is, it... uh, good drivers are going to do well here. So I I think Piastri could be a little bit on the back foot compared to Norris here. So I'll say Perez and Russell are the top four joining Max Verstappen and Landon Norris. The sprint, I I don't know. See, it's, it's hard for me to make a separate prediction for the sprint because in theory, things should be the same. And that's kind of why sprints are a little bit problematic. So I'll say Max wins the sprint um, becomes three-time world champion. Um, and I'll say, I don't know, Perez has a nightmare sprint again. And, uh, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he takes Russell with him or something. And, uh, we see a double McLaren, McLaren, uh, sprint podium again. Um, and then for the race, I think Max will probably win even bigger than he did in Suzuka. Um, I'll say Perez recovers from his bad sprint, has a P2 drive, and then Norris grabs the last spot on the podium. I'm expecting a big weekend from him. Um, In terms of Ferrari and Mercedes, I think they'll be close again. I think Mercedes might be a little bit better than they were last weekend, um, but still probably on par with Ferrari and not quite on the pace of the McLarens. Um, And my bold prediction is that Aston Martin is nowhere. I'm going to say they have their worst weekend of the season, barring, you know, Singapore. 
because that was a, a nightmare for other reasons, not so much their pace. Here, I'm going to say just pace-wise, they're behind Alpine and AlphaTauri. They're going to be about the seventh quickest team. So that is a bold one, and uh, that is unfortunate because, of course, that is Alonso's p uh, podium track. You know, he's returning to where he scored his first podium after his F1 return, and he's going to have a shocker is, is my prediction. So... There we go. Let's go into Brad's bets. We'll review my picks for Japan. I had Lando on the podium for plus 130. That was a big payout, so you're welcome for that. Gasly points, plus 105. More plus money for you if you bet on that. I did say I liked Albon to score points the most. Williams had a double DNF, so that was a no. He was plus 160, though, so maybe I should have, you know... <laughs> foreseen that because the books were not uh, not a fan of uh, that one so over 12 seconds for a winning margin was minus 105 that's pretty much even money that was a win so you're welcome for that one as well the quality margin this was something you could only get on bet 365 i said over a quarter of a second max had over half a second margin to p2 so that was a big plus 110 yes. So a pretty good weekend for me. My long shot, though, was double points for AlphaTauri. They did not score any points, so that was a no. But taking out my long shot and just doing my actual picks, four for five, not too bad. That's why you got to ride the bias every single race weekend. This week, I'm going for another over 12 seconds winning margin. This time, it is not minus 105. It is minus 160. The books are really feeling it, and to be honest, so am I. The way Paris is driving right now, I think Max doesn't have any competition within the team. His next closest competitor competitor will either be Perez, who is half a second a lap off of him right now, or it's if Max makes a mistake, which he doesn't do, or it's McLaren. And I don't think McLaren can get within 12 seconds of him over a race distance. The, the worry to me is those late punctures. If there's a red flag, if there's a safety car, that's what you have to worry about more than his actual competition. So really... To me, you're betting, you're taking minus 160 odds that there won't be a late safety car or uh, a red flag late in the race. So, to me, I would still take those odds. Minus 160 for over 12 seconds winning margin. Then it's Lando Norris on the podium. Again, a minus 160. So, these aren't really great payouts, but I'm really confident in Lando this weekend. So, I would take that. I'm going to say under 17 and a half classified drivers. So, at least three retirements for in the Qatar Grand Prix. The track is pretty unforgiving. If you uh, run wide, you will, um, you know, you'll you'll find yourself in some trouble. So I think we could see re some retirements here as well. Um, a couple crashes, possibly some retirements. Um, I don't know how warm it's going to be or anything like that. So I just think the unfamiliarity could be a, a problem for some rookies. Like Logan Sargent's been pretty crashy right now. Maybe we get one mechanical retirement and then someone else maybe has a puncture. I like that for plus 120. Admittedly, not as much as the minus 160 bets, but that's why it's plus 120, right? So this is another one that um, I don't typically say which ones I put money on. And even, you know, I, I pick all those winners or last week. I didn't actually bet on any of them. I'll say that. I had a separate bet that I actually lost, so maybe I should listen to myself a little bit more, um, but I don't want to just say, this is what I'm picking, guys, so ride with me or, or or don't. I have other things. I'm not a huge, huge, huge gambler. I, I like to bet on uh, a, a couple things every race weekend, so 
I see lots of things that I, I like. I share them with you guys. And sometimes I go off and do my own thing. This is one that I actually am doing. I don't usually say this, but Max Verstappen fastest in FP1, minus 150. I, I really like this one, to be honest. I feel like McLaren doesn't always come out of the gates really quick in practice. And when that is your number one competitor, I'm confident that Max, who is probably the best I've ever seen at getting up to speed right away, I think him fastest in FP1 is a slam dunk. And at minus 150, that is a steal. So hop all over that one. And then I'll say on Bet365 only, which I'm actually thinking of starting a Bet365 account um, and like putting some real money on there because the bets that you can do on there, there's just so many more for F1. Um, I do prefer FanDuel for other sports, which I also bet on other sports. But on Bet365, man, they just have so much for Formula 1. So here's my Bet365 exclusive. You can bet on whether a driver qualifies in the top three. Lando Norris is minus 120 on that. I would hammer that. Unfortunately, I don't have a Bet365 account, so I can't bet on it because I need to be approved within a couple days. I don't know if that's going to happen by the time the weekend rolls around. So I'm trying, but we'll see. Minus 120, I think he absolutely qualifies in the top three. Wouldn't be surprised if it's top two. I think he could maybe even come within a couple tenths of pole position. So there you go. And that is why my long shot bet is that McLaren has the fastest car in qualifying. Lando Norris, Oscar Piastri, one of them out qualifies Max Verstappen, or I guess everyone. Um, that's plus 550. I wish that could be a bit longer, but I still think that's not bad when Red Bull is actually, you know, an attainable target in qualifying. And that's on a Friday, right? So I think that makes it a bit easier for the other teams if they can come into the weekend, get it right, and, uh, you know, challenge Red Bull in the second session of the weekend. Now, let's talk about some news in the F1 world. All right. First and foremost, it has to be the pretty big development in Andretti Cadillac's bid for a spot in F1. The FIA have officially approved them, but now it's up to FOM, a.k.a. Formula One Management, the commercial rights holder, Liberty Media, basically all kind of the same here to give their final approval. This has been and will be by far the most difficult bit, though, um, you know, Formula One and especially the teams have been pretty critical of this bid so far. They're not very keen on splitting the prize pie with an 11th team that apparently doesn't bring enough to the sport. Um, that's what the, the quote of the day has been for quite a while now as this process continues to kind of drag on. It's been very long and whether it's been Total Wolf other teams, I don't need to go. The list goes on forever. They have all said that Andretti doesn't bring enough to, you know, warrant their spot um, in, in diluting the the prize money, right? So that doesn't mean that their bid won't be approved, though, just because the teams have been critical. After all, it is more up to Liberty Media than anyone. The bid is very complicated, though, and that is exactly why I've kind of chosen to... I'm not act like a journalist when it comes to this because there is a lot of context that's required to uh, discuss this topic. Um, so I've only chosen to really comment on it when big steps are taken. And this is a big step. So that's why we're here discussing it. 
Essentially, the Concord Agreement is a contract between the FIA, the teams, and Formula One uh, management, which dictates pretty much everything about how they'll go racing. You know, it says that 12 teams is the max amount of teams that will that will uh, be allowed to race on any given weekend and all other sorts of rules. It's all in this Concord Agreement, right? So the 12 teams is the max is kind of an important thing because obviously they allowed room for new teams to join in the Concord Agreement. And with the strength of this bid, it bears the question, why allow 12 teams if you're not going to, you know, allow a team with the commercial value of a GM brand such as Cadillac, you know, if you're not allowing them, what on earth are you holding out for, right? I mean, to me, I think F1 has to be a bit more worried that they're, you know, letting in the IndyCar version of Andretti Global instead of this um, idea of Andretti working with a... Uh, the might of a of a huge brand like GM and Cadillac because Andretti has underachieved in an arguably less series in recent years. I don't really want to open up the debate of Formula One versus IndyCar and what it takes to be a, a constructor and, and whatnot. That's a, a debate for another day. But, you know, with that being considered, if Formula One thinks they're getting that team, you know, and they're significantly reducing the payout to others without increasing the value of the sport, then maybe there is a bit of a worry. But I would say it's also worth mentioning that Andretti would have to pay a $200 million anti-dilution fee to become a new entrant according to the Concord Agreement. So this was uh, put in stone several years ago before F1's, you know, drive to survive explosion and commercial boom. And, uh, Teams believe that that fee should be two to three times higher as well. But I'll say this, if the FIA is approving Andretti, there has to be something worth considering there. Obviously, they believe that, you know, Cadillac is putting significant investment in here or possibly even, you know, constructing their own engine or, you know, having a uh, big um, impact on uh manufacturing of of the car and and everything apparently they're going to have a factory mostly in america and then i think a little bit in europe just to probably just make things a little bit more convenient but i think their main factory is going to be in the u.s um they would be probably bad news for Haas because i think andretti would be the de facto american team and not so much Haas, just because yes Haas is in nascar but i think I think Andretti with, you know, that name is just a little bit more, a little bit more popular, I guess. I don't think popular is the right word, but polarizing maybe in America. So yeah, I think that would be bad news for Haas in terms of their ability to market themselves of the, as the American team, because at best they would just become, you know, oh, there's two American teams now. But I even think that Andretti could become the American team and Haas is just Haas. So, yeah, uh, anyway, I'm getting a bit off track here. There, there would be something worth considering there, though, with, with Andretti if the FIA, um, you know, felt that they were worth approving. They turned down the other bids like Carlin and High Tech and uh, one other one, I believe. There was four bids and Andretti was the only one to be approved. So, obviously, there's something there. I hope to see them in Formula 1. I think an 11th team would be really cool. Um, But clearly, they still have a lot of convincing to do if they want to be on the grid in 2025, I think was the initial hope. I think that's a bit 
of a stretch now. I think they maybe need to plan for 26 or possibly even 2027, but I think 27 is also bad news. I think 26 is the sweet spot. That's when they should be looking to join F1 alongside Audi. So don't expect this process to be, you know, anywhere close to over. Andretti by no means is a guarantee to ever be on the Formula One grid. I hope to see them there. I think they should be there. Um, but they, like I said, have a lot of convincing to do to get onto the grid with how, um, you know, stubborn Formula One and Formula One management have been. Now, in other news, I also want to make note of the latest Vowels Verdict video released on the Williams team website. If you don't know what that is, that's when team principal James Vowels, you know, of the Williams team, I guess I should say, uh, breaks down what happened at each race weekend and answers fan questions. Um, he probably got the idea from from Mercedes because they do. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not necessarily his idea. But anyway, he did a similar thing with Mercedes. They have a race debrief. I watch them all the time. Um, it's interesting. They'll get someone from the team. A lot of the times it's James Allison. A lot of times it's Mike Elliott. Um, they just had uh, someone new. on. I'd never seen her on there before. I already forget her name. So I, I apologize for that, but um, I thought her insight was was pretty awesome too. Anyway, I'm getting off track. It's a full 11 minute video of all sorts of fan questions and whatnot, but a part of it has gone sort of viral, and it's where he comes to a strong defense of Logan Sargent, the uh, of course the American rookie driver whose seat is getting hotter and hotter as he continues to struggle and show little improvement over the course of the season. But Vowles mentions things like how Sargent has, in fact, shown promise, even when it's not been obvious to uh, the outside viewer. He notes specific times when Logan was impressive alongside Alex, despite running a worse spec than his teammate. But he still acknowledges that Logan needs to be better and uh, really cut out the mistakes and the crashes. Logan has, people are estimating, caused about $2.7 million of damage for Williams, one of the poorest teams on the grid. They can't really afford um, those types of, you know, that amount of crash damage, I should say. Um, and apparently it actually is affecting their, you know, their production. That's why Logan, he doesn't even have the fully upgraded Williams. It's on Alex's car, but they don't have enough parts to give him the proper Williams. And it's hard to say how much lap time that would cost him, but... Basically, Logan does look like he's about five tenths off Alex consistently. If this, you know, these upgrades on his car that he doesn't have, which are his fault, but still, just when you're monitoring his pace, if those upgrades cost about two tenths, then really he's only about three tenths off of Albon. And that already seems like that's a little bit more understandable for a rookie. And Alex is a pretty strong driver. 510 seems a little bit more um okay that's uh that gap is a bit of a worry 310 is a little bit more understandable so your perspective can change a little bit when you have that context so that was really interesting basically his message summed up though I can't go through it all um was that he is putting his faith behind his rookie at least publicly you know he explicitly said they want him in the car next year there are targets in place for Logan to hit and if he hits them, he's in the seat next year. And I just have to say that I love that because, you know, it's basically the opposite of what Red Bull do. Red Bull, 
especially Helmut Marko, love to publicly bash their drivers when they're not doing well. Could you imagine if Logan was in the AlphaTauri? He, for one, would already be dropped, probably. But if you weren't, then Helmut would be in the media every single weekend talking about how, you know, he's not focused enough because he's, he's an American driver. I mean, like, <laughs> I know that's what he just said about Perez, but you think he wouldn't say that about an American, too? This is awesome to see a small team, um, a team with uh, pretty much a non-existent driver program to, you know, I, th- I mean, you could argue that that maybe is adding a bit to their stubbornness in getting rid of Logan because they want their driver program to work. But I think it is on the flip side important for their driver program to work or else they're just not going to be able to have one. So still, I think this is an overall very like plus move from from Vows and from Williams to show you know potential new young drivers that want to join their program that we are going to put people in the car we are going to give them more than one year we are going to give them our support until it is obvious that they're not going to pan out he did kind of make some excuses i think for logan saying that uh he only had a you know a day and a half in the car in Bahrain. He had no previous Formula One tests, and then he got thrown into a a really difficult season for rookies, which I think is a bit of a a stretch. Like Piastri is doing extremely well. Liam got thrown into a less than ideal situation, and he is doing extremely well in the AlphaTauri. Nick DeVries struggled, but he's already gone, so he people he's already are starting to forget about him. But anyway, I will say this. If you remember Yuki's rookie season, I would say it's very similar to this. Yuki just had a much better AlphaTauri car. Yuki maybe showed a bit more flashes of rapid pace. I mean, the first race and the last race of the season were great for Yuki. The middle was a disaster. He was so far off of Pierre. He was crashing all the time, making very silly mistakes. And now he looks like he absolutely deserves to be in Formula 1. So Logan might just be a little raw as well, similar um, you know, to, to Yuki. So it's worth giving him at least another year, especially if there aren't any better alternatives. It seems like Williams doesn't want to put Liam in the car because they don't want to just lose him the following year, um, which I think is fair. And then the other options at that point are potentially starting all over again with someone new and hurting their driver program by going to someone like Felipe Drogovic or Mick Schumacher. So yeah, when the options are limited, I think it makes sense. Um, But I want to just ask this question just for, you know, something to think about. Would you rather a rookie who shows no glimpses of being rapid but is incredibly mature, um, kind of like a Zhou Guan Yu? You know, Zhou was good in qualifying at times but never was, like, astonishingly quick. But he really cut up mistakes, was a great person to work with, and all of that. Or would you rather have someone who is incredibly inconsistent and crashy, but has moments of of being really quick? And I think the perfect comparison there is would you rather have Zhou Guan Yu or Yuki Tsunoda? They've, Yuki's had one extra year in Formula One, but I think Yuki's actually younger than Zhou. So basically take their careers, look at their rookie seasons, and then look at them now. I think it's pretty much a pretty fair comparison. They were polar opposites. Tsunoda had great performances like he was amazing in Abu Dhabi 2021 Joe was always just kind of mid and I wouldn't say he doesn't deserve to be in Formula One but is he ever being going to be considered for you know a different seat other than Alfa Romero if he was cut from Formula One do you think any team would be 
all over trying to sign him? I, I don't think so because he's never really been super quick, but he is an absolutely fine, you know, driver to be one of the 20 on the Formula One grid. He, he doesn't look out of place. And apparently, like I said, he's great to work with. He's not going to cost the team a whole lot of money because he doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes. So there are positives there. So what would you rather? I don't know. Personally, I think I'd rather take a chance on the potential. But again, it does matter where you are. Like somewhere like Haas where they need to just get points, especially at the beginning of seasons. Getting someone like uh, an experienced Nico Hulkenberg. Although that's not really what we're talking about, is it? I mean, we're talking about young drivers. So... I guess that isn't really that relevant, but I think you get what I'm saying. I think I'd rather take the potential. Does Logan really fit into either of those? Because has he really shown enough potential? Apparently he has. I don't know. Anyway, I would like to see Logan given another shot, but he's got to be on a short leash next year because if there there are no excuses next year if he's kind of doing the same thing. So yeah, as long as he's not in Formula One for a third or even was it a fourth? No. Nicholas Latifi was in Formula One for three years. As long as he's not getting a third year like Latifi was, then Williams is fine. Lastly, just to kind of wrap it up here, it was really cool to see Jessica Hawkins get a test in the Aston Martin. So shout out to her and the Aston team for uh, you know that opportunity. I thought it was pretty cool. She also went on the Tim Haraney's Nailing the Apex podcast. Of course, he is a friend of this pod. So go check out his interview with her to see what, you know, uh, someone who's never driven in an F1 car says what it's like to drive in an F1 car. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, go check that out. So that will do it for episode 73 of Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer, and I will be back next week to review the Qatar Sprint weekend. It's almost a guarantee that Max Verstappen will be a three-time champion the next time that we speak. Goodbye.